0: while the whole world was watching the horrific events that unfolded on September 11, 2001, when the terrorists hijacked planes that flew into the World Trade Center in New York City in the Pentagon. Another, much quieter drama was unfolding in a hotel room in City of Industry, California. Everyone there was glued to their TV screens, watching the World Trade Center crumble. So no one noticed that 52-year-old Larry McNabney a wealthy lawyer who had been attending a horse show there with his wife and some friends, vanished without a trace. In that suburb of Los Angeles, Larry was being slowly poisoned, and his friends were distracted as someone wheeled him out of his hotel room in a wheelchair and drove him to his death without anyone ever noticing. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Larry McNabney was a character. He was a personal injury lawyer, so he was one of those guys who had billboards all around town. He lived in Reno, Nevada, but also had a practice in Las Vegas. And in the legal profession, Larry McNabney was a big deal. He had these super over-the-top TV ads. He would dress up as the Marlboro Man and act like a cowboy. And they worked. Over the years, as a criminal defense attorney and later as a personal injury lawyer... Larry McNabney made a fortune. According to author Carlton Smith's book, Cold-Blooded, a true story of love, lies, greed, and murder. Larry was handsome and charismatic and always the life of the party. But he also spent a lot of his life battling demons, including alcoholism. But if you didn't know about Larry's dark side, he would have appeared to be living the dream. In 2001, Larry was traveling around the country showing his horses with his wife, Elisa, and their expensive new quarter horse, Whole lot of Page. Elisa was quite a character herself. She was beautiful and almost 20 years younger than Larry. And also, Elisa was Larry's fifth wife. But she wasn't just a pretty face. Elisa had beauty and brains. She had an MBA and an IQ of 140. She had been working for Larry as an office manager before they got romantically involved. So, the weekend of a horse show started out pretty normally. Elisa and Larry weren't alone. They had a 21-year-old woman named Sarah Dutra with them. Now, Sarah had been an art student before Larry hired her as a legal secretary for his law firm. And she was also very close friends with Elisa. In fact, the two women had become pretty much inseparable, even though Elisa was 10 years older. And there was whispering about exactly how close their relationship was, and whether there was anything romantic going on. Now, for the record, both Sarah and Elisa have always denied that there was anything like that going on. Elisa said it was just a close friendship, and it seemed like she was kind of a mentor to Sarah in a lot of ways. There were some other people around that weekend. Larry's horse trainer, a guy named Greg Whalen, and his adult daughter, Debbie. As we said, Larry liked to drink. According to Carlton Smith's book, a horse trainer who worked with Larry said that he always had a glass of white wine in his hand and that his drink of choice was mostly Chardonnay. But Larry had another little secret. He had a habit of spiking his drinks with something stronger. And over that weekend, witnesses said that he went through a whole bottle of vodka during a single golf game. Now, even for Larry, this seemed like overkill. Debbie Kale, Greg Whelan's daughter, who was there that weekend, said that during this time, Larry seemed out of it. He was slurring his words and seemed super drunk, even for him. He was also rude and depressed, just basically not himself. On the night of September 9th, Larry went out to the Olive Garden restaurant with Debbie, Greg, Elisa, and Sarah. He ended up getting into an argument with Sarah. He had a big confrontation with her, and basically he told her that he wanted her to leave. She ended up standing up and saying, F you, Larry. Then Sarah said... She was getting out of there. She planned to make the six-hour drive back to Sacramento that night. Now, this wasn't unusual. Larry had been telling his friends for some time that he was bothered by the relationship between Sarah and his wife, and Elisa would just tell people that Larry was a drunk and he did drugs and he was just paranoid. So this situation had been coming to a head for a while, but it seemed like it really kicked off on that night, September 9th. Then, on September 10th, Larry seemed to have calmed down a little. He spent some time at the barn. He was drinking and getting his horse ready. He talked to Greg Whalen again, and he seemed a little more upbeat. He was talking about taking his horse back east for some more shows. Once again, he was drinking Chardonnay from an ice chest. Later that afternoon, Larry said that he was gonna skip dinner, go back to his hotel room, and rest. At around 6.30, Greg, Debbie, and Elisa were together. Elisa called Larry on her cell phone and asked again if he wanted to join them. And again, Larry said no. Now, Greg would later tell police that he could hear Larry in the background asking for more wine. So a few minutes later, Elisa left with some chardonnay and some soup and took it up to Larry's room, room 916. Greg never saw Larry again. The attacks on September 11th would forever be linked to this case, Because everyone was trying to remember what happened when, but it was hard because they had been so focused on the terror attacks. It was a time of chaos and confusion. And, side note, it also really calls into question a lot of the things we think we know about memory because I was always taught when I first started doing investigations that if there was a major life event, something like the World Trade Center or JFK getting assassinated or a murder, it meant that you could remember everything that happened around that event a lot more precisely. But what we've actually discovered about memory now is that every time we talk about a memory, part of our brain is rewriting it. So memory is a very dynamic process. Our memories change all the time. It was really well illustrated in this case because everyone could remember seeing Elisa and seeing Larry, but when they talked about the events of September 11th, often the timing was a little bit off. Debbie did remember asking Elisa where Larry was. She said Elisa told her that Larry had gone to Florida to join a cult. Now this may sound strange, but Larry did have a habit of picking up strange hobbies, getting totally into them for a while and then dropping them. Actually for a period of time, he'd quit his legal job and followed a guru. So this wasn't something that could be considered as coming totally out of thin air. But Larry hadn't mentioned anything about that. He had talked specifically with Greg Whalen about showing his horse. And on top of that, everyone was suspicious because with the drama of 9-11 unfolding, obviously all the flights in the U.S. were grounded. So everyone's wondering, how was Larry going to travel to Florida? Elisa said she honestly wasn't sure. She said she thought maybe Larry had left on an earlier flight. But then Debbie saw something weird. She saw Elisa loading some stuff into the bed of Larry's new red truck and said she was really surprised because if his truck was there, she was figuring that Larry wasn't driving to Florida either. Elisa and Sarah drove away with all Larry's belongings in that truck bed. And then no one heard anything for a while until February 5, 2002, when employees at a San Juan vineyard called the police. They had found a human leg sticking out of the ground. Testing would prove that the body was Larry McNabney. The autopsy revealed no obvious trauma to the body, so there wasn't an obvious cause of death. But the autopsy also found that Larry had been dead for around two months. The body wasn't as decomposed as they would have expected it to be. So they theorized that someone had kept the body preserved somewhere else, maybe somewhere cold, and then dumped it in the vineyard in California wine country. Eventually, they found a massive amount of drugs in Larry's system. The cause of death was a fatal overdose of horse tranquilizers. Now, obviously, police need to find out what went down at that horse show, and they needed to find Elisa. But on January 11th, she had left Sacramento, where she and Larry had been living, and no one had any idea where she was. So now police needed to take a look at Larry and Elisa's history, and they were going to be blown away by how crazy this story got. According to the book, Cold-Blooded, Larry had a tough upbringing. His dad fought in the Korean War, and he was a strict disciplinarian. He was also an alcoholic, which would be something that ran in the family. Over the years, Larry's father, Mac, fought more and more with his wife and got more impatient and more super strict with Larry and his brother. But everything looked perfect on the outside, The family had money, a nice house, and cars. On the surface, they seemed to be living the American dream. Larry started dating a woman named Donna in high school, and they got married after graduation. He went to the University of Nevada in Reno, but things started to fall apart in his marriage, especially when, like his father, Larry started drinking. Larry and Donna divorced in 1970. In that same year, Larry had huge tragedies in his life, His mom filed for divorce too. And a few days later, his father, Mac, took his own life by shooting himself. Three weeks later, his only brother, Jimmy, died of an apparent drug overdose. So this is a series of events which, understandably, emotionally destroyed Larry. In 1973, he got married again to a woman with a five-year-old daughter. He adopted the little girl and started building a career as a star lawyer. Reno was a goldmine for lawyers during that time. And Larry was right in the mix. He was doing big, high-pressure and high-profile cases. He and his wife had a son named Joe. Larry was drinking a lot during this time, but this was the late 70s and early 80s. So there was also a ton of that in work environments back then. And a lot of cocaine and late nights. Larry checked into rehab at least once, according to reports. He and his wife divorced in the early 80s. Now, as we said before, Larry had had his share of relationship drama before he met Elisa. He got married and divorced again, and his divorce from his third wife got pretty ugly. In fact, it ended up going all the way to the Nevada Supreme Court. And actually, Larry's case was a divorce case that got the law changed. It's too complex to go into here, but basically, there was a question about whether equitable meant the same thing as equal. It came down to deciding how much Larry's wife would have been entitled to. The first court ruled that it would be equitable for Larry to get something like 80% of the marital assets, but his ex-wife challenged that ruling. She said she wanted 50% and the court ruled in her favor. From that point on in Nevada, the law changed so that a 50-50 split in divorces basically became the rule unless the parties agreed otherwise. And that was called the McNabney Rule. Over the years, Larry became a big success. And as a criminal defense lawyer, he defended two of Nevada's most well-known cases. There was a bombing extortion plot at Harvey's Casino in 1982 and a big drug conspiracy trial in 1989. The drug conspiracy trial in 1989 also put huge pressure on Larry. During that time, friends say he was super depressed. He told people that he was considering taking his own life. And during that time, one of his friends said that he told Larry in what would turn out to be a pretty horrific case of foreshadowing, Larry, women are going to be the death of you. After the breakup of his fourth marriage, he had a girlfriend named Tracy. His family and friends described Tracy as normal and loving, supportive and calm. And at around that same time, he became involved in something called Ramtha's School of Enlightenment, which was run by a controversial leader, a woman named Jay-Z Knight. Jay-Z, who was born Judith Hampton, claimed to channel Ramtha, a 35,000-year-old warrior. Now, this was during the late 80s and early 90s when people like Shirley MacLaine were talking about channeling and crystals and books about miracles were becoming more and more mainstream. A lot of people were diving into new age stuff back then. And it seemed to work for Larry, at least for a while. Larry stopped working as a lawyer and took up carpentry. And he told friends that this time of his life, where he was doing projects as a contractor with his hands and with his girlfriend, he was sweet and calm. He said this was the happiest he had ever been in his life. He took the focus off material things and just kind of kept it simple. But once again, the bliss didn't last. He left the organization shortly after that and became a practicing lawyer again. But this time, he wasn't doing murder trials. He was targeting insurance companies. He became known as Nevada's king of torts, and his firm, Larry McNabney & Associates, was focusing on the big-time payouts. He very wisely developed a strategy where he focused on advertising, and he put himself in the ads. They made tons of these cheesy TV commercials, became very well-known, and started raking in the money. For a while, it seemed like Larry might have finally beaten his demons. He bought a big new house in Reno, where he lived with his girlfriend Tracy and her kids. And at the same time, while he built the business in Las Vegas, he rented a beautiful apartment there. He also leased a private jet so he could make the commute between the two cities. He had this new office in Las Vegas and he needed to hire some people to staff it up. One day, a 29-year-old named Elizabeth Elisa Redelsberger came in to interview for the office manager position. Elisa was newly divorced and looking for action. She was 29, Larry was 46, but before long, Larry fell head over heels in love with Elisa, and she moved into his rental. He leased them matching black and white Jaguars, so they would have matching cars. Now, all this time, by the way, his girlfriend is still living in his place back in Reno. Some of his friends thought that Elisa was a little shady because, depending on who she was talking to, Elisa seemed to have different stories about her background. She told some people that she was the daughter of a wealthy Cuban businessman. She said she spoke fluent Spanish. But one of Larry's friends noticed that she never actually spoke Spanish around native speakers. She just seemed to say a few words. Again, she was smart about what she brought up and who she chose to tell what lies to. One of Larry's friends made a comment along the lines of, you would ask her a specific question about the details of her school, and she would start talking about skiing. She was really good at changing the conversation like a politician. Pretty soon, Elisa was managing that entire office, and she took over the cash flow. She even talked Larry into giving her a rubber stamp so that she could sign things for him. Now... I'm a member of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, and we always talk about red flags in an organization. This is a practice that should absolutely be avoided. Actually, there were two things going on there that were potentially problematic. One, having a friend or family member run everything, and two, having only one person to answer to when it comes to signing off on monetary transactions. Anyway, most of Larry's friends didn't seem to like Elisa. They thought she seemed cold and kind of weird, And reading between the lines after reading two books about this and a lot of articles, it seemed like they were saying she seemed kind of trashy and shady. But Larry was in love, so he wasn't listening to advice. He kicked his girlfriend, who he once described as the best thing that ever happened to him and her kids, out of the big house on Buckaroo Court in Reno. And he moved Elisa and her daughter Haley in. By Christmas 1995, the rumors were flying there was something seriously wrong with the finances of the law firm. At the office party, people were talking about the fact that checks from the client trust fund were bouncing. Larry hired an accountant who soon found out that there were huge amounts of money missing. Larry confronted Elisa and figured out that she had embezzled around $250,000 from his business. She'd been writing checks for stuff for herself. Later, she even bought a quarter horse with a check. When Larry confronted Elisa about the missing money, she admitted that yes, she took it. And it's not clear exactly what happened between them at that point, but Larry did fire Elisa. Larry knew he had to put the money back, so he started borrowing thousands of dollars from friends and frantically tried to replace the money before the state bar or anyone else could figure out what was going on. But even though Elisa never paid him back, with her gone, Everyone at the law firm kinda breathed easier. They thought maybe the worst was over, but they got a shock when they came into the office right after the new year and found out that on January 6th, 1996, Larry married Elisa. Obviously, Larry isn't here, so we can never know what was going through his mind at that point. Some people have said, hey, Larry was a smart guy. There were some people who were convinced that Larry knew that he could be implicated in some criminal activity, They say, they think, he married Elisa because if something came up, as his wife, she could not be forced to testify against him. Other people have said that Larry was drawn to Elisa because she enabled his addictions. She kept him plied with alcohol, gave him anything he wanted, including drugs, in order to stay in control. They say that she enabled the worst part of him. Basically, she was exactly the opposite of his ex-girlfriend. She helped him embrace his dark side, and a part of him enjoyed that. Or it could have been that he was just blindly, madly in love with Elisa. It seems clear that whatever she was doing at that point, Larry seemed to be all in. People have debated how much they think Larry knew during this period of time. and asked whether he had been taking client money himself. How much he held back, even after he figured out what Elisa was doing. In 1997, Larry was found guilty of unprofessional conduct by the Nevada Bar Association. And after that, associates say the firm was never the same. Larry ended up selling that big house in Reno. And in 1998, he relocated with Elisa to Sacramento. He was licensed to practice law in California, too. He tried to restart the practice there. And once again, incredibly, he hired Elisa to work for him. He started making money again. But as fast as he made it, Larry and Elisa were spending it. Over the next few years, Larry became more and more withdrawn and isolated. This is a practice that Larry's son, Joe, told the author, Carlton Stevens, that Elisa encouraged. He said Elisa basically kept him cut off from his dad. And that on the rare occasions where they were able to grab a moment alone, he said that Larry made a cryptic comment to him about Elisa being a compulsive liar. He said that in his opinion, his dad seemed to be afraid of Elisa. He thought maybe she had something on him. He said Larry said something along the lines of, I can never leave her. By 1999, Larry was getting out of the house a little more. He and Elisa had started showing quarter horses. Soon they were winning with their horse just a lot of page. But Larry was drinking more and more. Eventually, he stopped coming into the office almost completely. So Elisa needed to hire someone else to help her there. Something else happened in 2000. That's when Sarah Dutra came into the picture. She was hired at the firm, and she struck up a friendship with Elisa. Now, things get weird here, because even though Sarah was just a college student with zero legal experience, Elisa offered Sarah this really nice salary, plus a car if she took the job. Pretty soon, they were stuck together like glue. A lot of people think that Elisa saw a lot of herself in Sarah, this young, blonde, pretty girl, and that she became kind of like Sarah's grifter mentor. Larry became more and more suspicious of Elisa's friendship with Sarah. And he told people at horse shows that he thought they were too close. They slept in the same bed, borrowed each other's clothes, and despite the 10-year age difference between Elisa and Sarah, they pretty much partied with the same crowd. The tension was rising because Larry started being more and more openly hostile to Sarah. Larry got a DUI in December of 2000. He really seemed to be hitting rock bottom. And while Larry's drinking was getting more and more out of control, Elisa was bleeding him dry. She was spending money on designer shoes, tons of stuff for the horses. As we know from this case and from other red collar cases, the horse world is extremely expensive. Elisa used a pretty low-tech method to drain Larry's accounts. She didn't have to hack in or anything. Now, a lot of people listening to this, especially if you're young, may not remember this, But there was a time when checks would be written in these big books and you would write the check and it would have a piece of paper underneath it called a foil. It captured the imprint of a check and basically made a copy. So Elisa figured out a way to fake this. She would put a piece of cardboard under the checks so that when she wrote them out, they wouldn't make an imprint on the foil. In that way, she was able to make the checks say whatever amount she wanted them to say. Bottom line was, Larry had no idea how much she was really stealing from him. The amounts were pretty shocking. She spent $12,300 on the horse and over $2,000 per month for care and feeding. Authorities say that over a period of just a few months, Elisa stole around $140,000. The credit cards were maxed out, and things got so dire that she even allegedly stole their friend Greg Whalen's credit card information. By the time the horse show in the city of industry rolled around, Larry was on the brink of bankruptcy. And he was starting to figure out just how deep of a hole he was in. As of September 10, 2001, Elisa and Larry had a bank balance of $141. Elisa was slipping ketamine, a horse tranquilizer, into his wine. And keeping him plastered so she could steal more and more massive amounts of money. By the time Larry started to figure out what was going on, it was too late. Over the weekend, people were noticing how hostile Larry and Elise's relationship had become and how rude he was to Sarah. Then there was the confrontation in the Olive Garden. And then Larry disappeared. And even the people who said that Larry was unhappy couldn't believe that he would just drop off the face of the earth like that. As we said, it was a chaotic time, and so people's recollection of the timeline differed a little. But Larry's friends were clear. The last time that any of them had heard Larry's voice was right before Elisa took a bowl of soup and two glasses of Chardonnay back to that hotel room. People were shocked when Larry McNabney's wife, Elisa, told them that Larry just vanished. They were even more shocked to see that Sarah Dutra was back. Even after all the drama at the Olive Garden and Larry telling Elisa they had to fire Sarah and Sarah leaving dramatically in the night, she somehow popped back up. Sarah told everyone that she had gone back to Sacramento, but that Elisa had called her and wanted her to come back so she ended up taking one of the last flights back from Sacramento before everything got shut down. No one noticed when Elisa wheeled Larry out in a wheelchair, and Sarah was with her, rolling out their luggage. Back in Sacramento, a 25-year-old woman named Ginger Miller, who had been hired to start work at Larry's firm at around the time of that fateful horse show, told the TV show Deadly Wives that she never saw Larry after that. Elisa told her that Larry was abusive. Ginger heard Elisa and Sarah tell different people different stories about where Larry was over the next few months. Elisa told Ginger that Larry was an alcoholic and he was in rehab. She said instead of going to a normal three-month program, Larry was going to be away for 12 months. She told other people that Larry was in Central America or that he joined a cult. Then one day, Ginger told the TV show that she got a call from the woman who Elisa and Sarah had rented the wheelchair from. The woman was complaining, saying that she wanted her $350 deposit back because Elisa and Sarah had never returned that wheelchair. And there was something else that was bothering Ginger. She said right after the horse show, Elisa and Sarah gave Ginger some paperwork. They wanted to sell Larry's red truck. And at this point, he'd only be missing for a couple of days. She also tried to give another friend some of his belongings pretty much immediately, including his ostrich-skin boots, which friends knew that he loved and would never give away. Elisa and Sarah were forging Larry's signature right and left. Ginger said that the whole time she was there, she really didn't do any legal work. She was just moving money from Larry's business accounts to a horse training company that Elisa had set up. Elisa kept spending money. She bought a new red jaguar and she was soon living it up with her BFF, Sarah. She had bought her a red BMW. While they were partying, Ginger Miller went to the police at the end of November. She told them that she thought Elisa and Sarah had done something to Larry. She told them about Elisa taking money out of the client accounts, money that, by the way, should have been going to people who had been injured and gotten a settlement. Now, this part is really crazy, in my mind. While the police did their investigation, They told Ginger just to go back to work and basically act like everything was normal. I cannot imagine how stressful this must have been for Ginger because one day soon after that, a notice came to the law office saying that Larry's license to practice law had expired. According to Ginger, at this point, Elisa had a total meltdown. She knew this was basically the end of the road. At this point, Larry had been gone for almost three months. His family kept calling and it was clear they really weren't buying that rehab story. Then on January 11th, Elisa called Ginger and told her she was moving to Arizona. Ginger went over to Elisa's horse trailer where Elisa was frantically cleaning everything out. Now at this point while I'm watching Deadly Wives, I know it's just a reenactment but all I can think about is how lucky Ginger was to have gotten out of there alive. What if Elisa had known that Ginger talked to the police? They were alone in a remote location Maybe police thought that because Elisa was a woman and this was sort of a white collar case that she wasn't a threat. They've done that in a lot of other cases and often it's ended with someone dead. But in this case, Elisa didn't know. Ginger stayed cool. Elisa got into the horse trailer and hit the road. Elisa found out that the police were looking for her. But right before they got there to arrest her, she unhitched the horse trailer and drove away in the Jaguar. In the end, the police couldn't catch up and they lost her. But they were able to search the horse trailer, and when they did, detectives got another huge shock. When they looked for her criminal record, they couldn't find one because Elisa didn't exist. In that horse trailer, they found some legal documents, and that's when they learned that Elisa's real name was Laren Renee Sims. Over the years, Laren Sims had a total of 38 aliases, including Melissa Godwin, Tammy Keelan, Elizabeth Barash, which was actually an identity she stole from a woman she met in prison while she was in Florida, and Elisa Rettelsberger, that was the name she used when she met Larry McNabney. Elisa may have been clean, but Laren had a long criminal record. She had been convicted of hundreds of offenses, including fraud and grand theft. So, who was Laren Sims? Laren was born in the small town of Brooksville, Florida, in 1966. She was a cheerleader in high school, beautiful and had a brilliant mind. But friends and family said that she always had a problem with authority. She wanted to do things her way. Laren dropped out of high school in 1984 to marry a guy named Virgil Jordan who went by his middle name, Scott. They had a daughter named Haley. She split up with Scott and later had another baby with another man. Her second child was a son and the man was a lot older than her There were rumors that he may have been involved with someone else. It was kind of a scandal back then. Anyway, they ended up splitting up. So she had two kids and a history of petty theft. She would steal things that weren't expensive, but that were important to the people who had them. She liked to steal things that had sentimental value. She was brilliant, but she could never parlay this intelligence into anything long-term or concrete. And when she would get into these situations with the law, her parents would often bail her out, they would hire attorneys for her. She wrote bad checks, she got evicted, she got sentenced to some jail time. While she was on probation, she got busted for using her boss's credit card. She would steal things that were small, like a box of hair dye from a drugstore. She loved to change her look and her hair color. A lot of newspaper headlines have described her as a chameleon, and that is very true. When she was arrested for the credit card fraud, instead of going back to jail, one day, she just cut off her ankle-monitoring bracelet, and she fled the state with her daughter, Haley. Her son had cerebral palsy. She left him with his dad. One of her brothers talked to a journalist named Brian Karam for his book, Marked for Death. The brothers said that Laren never went for good-looking men. She tended to go for older guys or one she felt she could control in some way. After all the drama in Florida, the only lesson that Laren learned from her crimes seemed to be that if she was going to commit crime... She needed to stay one step ahead and keep changing her name. By the time she resurfaced in Las Vegas, she had become Elizabeth Ann Barash. She was using the name of a cellmate from Florida. She shortened this to Elisa. She married a guy named Kenneth Redelsberger, so she became Elisa Redelsberger. They later divorced, and he said that during his time with her, she stole from him too. He was shocked when he heard about the murder. So while police hunted for Laren, they questioned Sarah Dutra. Sarah changed her story several times. She eventually admitted that she had been there when Larry died. She said that Elisa had called her in a panic after she flew back to Sacramento. She said Elisa told her that Larry was violent and out of control. So Sarah flew back down to LA and came back to the hotel. Then she said that over that night, after Elisa had given Larry the soup and chardonnay, they went out of his room in and out all night to check on him. She said this was to make sure that he didn't get violent. Later though, Sarah admitted that she and Elisa had poisoned Larry. Police finally located Elisa in Destin, Florida. She had been living as Shane Ivoroni. In fact, she'd gone on a date with another guy and stolen his truck. She was arrested in March, 2002. She was in a jail cell waiting for extradition to California in the Hernando County Jail but she never made it there because a few days later, her body was found in her cell. She was hanging from a braided bedsheet, and later died. Investigators found a confession note that she'd left behind. It was torn into a bunch of pieces and thrown into a corner of her cell. Elisa told detectives that she and Sarah had dosed Larry with massive amounts of horse tranquilizer. She said they put it in his coffee the morning of the horse show. Then, after he collapsed, they took him back to the hotel and dosed him again. Now, most of the news reports skip over this part. They say Larry was poisoned, but they leave out the fact that this poisoning took place over several days. He was in agony and dying slowly, as everyone around him watched. They just thought he was drunk, so neither he nor they had any real idea what was going on. That's why investigators believed Larry was so incoherent and was stumbling around during that last night at the Olive Garden. But detectives still didn't think that Sarah was telling the whole truth about what she did and her level of participation in Larry's murder. They would get more information from her bit by bit by using good interrogation tactics. For example, they asked her if there was any reason why her fingerprints would be on the duct tape that Larry's body was taped with. This is a common tactic in interrogation. They actually teach this because... Her prints actually weren't on the tape, but Sarah didn't know that. When she told police, I don't know, I'll have to think about it, they knew that they had her. When they wheeled Larry out in the wheelchair, I cannot imagine a more horrific death in some ways because he would have been totally aware of what was going on around him. He was conscious, and that's probably why he was getting belligerent. He was actually trying to get away from these women. But even though he might have known what they were doing, his body was paralyzed and he couldn't get away. They put Larry in the truck. And on the way back to Sacramento, they detoured and went to Yellowstone National Park. During that car ride, Sarah told police that Larry kept asking for water and that Laren, the woman she knew as Elisa, kept giving him a water bottle to drink from. She claimed that it was not until much later that Laren told her that water was poisoned. They drove to Yosemite National Park. Their plan, Laren told detectives, was to dump Larry's body there. But when they dug the hole and went to throw him in, they saw that Larry was still breathing. Laren and Sarah had been poisoning Larry McNabney for days, but Larry was strong. He was around 200 pounds, athletic, and plus, he had a high tolerance. He'd been an alcoholic for years, and he had a habit of spiking his drink with other things, like vodka or, in some cases, some of his friends say a little bit of ketamine. So while he was dying slowly, they loaded him back into that truck. They took him back to the three-bedroom home in Woodbridge that he and his wife had been renting. Laren told police that they gave him another dose of horse tranquilizers and that she helped him into the bathtub. Now, when police asked her why she did this, she told them that it was because she felt helpless and didn't know what to do. She said that Larry was violent and Larry, she said, had attacked Sarah at the horse show. Never mind the fact that Larry was getting violent because he probably figured out that they were killing him. Now, who did what may never be answered. Sarah claimed that the whole thing was engineered by Laren, but Laren said in her confession that it was Sarah who had administered that fatal dose. She said that Sarah got the idea to get a syringe and put the drug into a Visine bottle. Then after Larry went to sleep in the hotel room, Sarah put the drops into his mouth. But the next morning, the women had a problem because Larry was still alive. That's when they rented the wheelchair, rolled him out of the hotel, and went on the road. After they made their pit stop in Yosemite and went back to the house... Laren said that she bathed Larry because in a way she wanted to take care of him. She said she put him to bed and that when she woke up in the morning, Larry was dead. Now, she said she and Sarah had to figure out what to do with the body. They took Larry's bottles of wine out of a refrigerator in the garage and then put the body in, wrapped it in duct tape and shut the door. Then they went out and kept on spending Larry's money. The body was preserved in there for months. Sometime in December, the body was moved. Laren has said that she was the only one who moved the body and that Sarah wasn't there during that part, but investigators say we may never know for sure. The corpse was buried in the vineyard and they gave the refrigerator away to some family friends. By the time Larry's body was found, Laren had cleaned out an additional $500,000. And it was interesting because in that torn up note in her cell that was written to Laren's lawyer, Thomas Hogan, She showed signs of being a manipulative narcissist right up to the end. According to media reports, she was kind of flirting with her attorney in that note. It seemed like she couldn't break the habit of a lifetime. She told her lawyer to sue the jail because she said the jail had failed to stop her from taking her own life. She also asked that her children receive any funds raised from a lawsuit. She wrote, this is all I can give to my children. My actions now will allow them to move into the future without this heavy burden. They won't have to watch my trial on court TV. It should all die with me. Police have said when they arrested Laren in Florida, she kind of walked up to them and said, I'm the person you've been looking for. It seemed like by the time this all finally caught up with her, she was finally tired of running. Sarah started her trial on January 6, 2003. She was charged with first degree murder with special circumstances and with being an accessory after the fact for her role in burying Larry. Sarah defended herself by saying she was manipulated by Laren, but there was a video of her talking to detectives that definitely hurt her case. In the video, she seems totally unsurprised and shows very little emotion when detectives tell her that Larry's dead. She seems stone cold in that video. Also, the jury heard about the fact that it took Larry so long to die. And during that period of time, Sarah had plenty of chances to get help. She had driven home to talk to her mom, and she actually picked up her little Maltese, her dog named Ralphie. But during that time, she didn't tell her family members a thing. In court, more evidence came out. Larry's horse trainer and friend, Debbie Kale, who was there the weekend of the horse show, said in court that Laren, the woman she knew as Elisa, told friends that she would make sure Larry has enough to drink so she could meet friends and party without him. This happened shortly before he disappeared. She also said Laren told her that she had dosed her husband's wine with drugs. Debbie said she had told me previously that she had gotten Vicodin and said she had put that in Larry's wine just to see what would happen. She said it didn't even drop him. Debbie also said that right before Larry vanished, Laren had asked her a question. She asked if a particular horse tranquilizer could kill someone. And Debbie said, yeah, I could. Debbie also said she carried a veterinary kit that was filled with all kinds of horse drugs, some of them the horse tranquilizers that were used to poison Larry. Elisa knew where this was and she knew the code. She could have accessed these drugs pretty easily. And there was another tragic fact that came out at court. When Debbie saw Laren loading Larry's stuff into the truck bed and she asked what she was doing, she didn't know at that time That Larry was in the back seat of the truck, his eyes were rolling back in his head, and he was in pain, being poisoned. Debbie said she tried to look in, but she couldn't see through the tinted windows. She didn't know that Larry was in there and that he was in trouble. There was also the testimony of Laren's daughter Haley, whose life had been totally upended since she was a baby because of her mother's criminal actions. She said that Sarah never seemed afraid when she was around her mother. There was a deadlock some of the jury really believed that Sarah had been an innocent victim. In the end, they agreed on convicting her of voluntary manslaughter. The judge sentenced Sarah to 11 years in prison. She was also ordered to pay $178,000 to her victims. Sometimes, juries don't hear everything, and after the trial, it came out that while Sarah was behind bars, she did what a lot of criminals do. It was reported that she talked to another inmate who told police that Sarah was bragging that she was the one who gave the fatal dose to Larry. She said she wanted to prove herself to her friend. Later, one of the jurors told the press that they had been duped. They said if they had known about what happened between Sarah and the other inmate, they would have voted to convict, but now it was too late. Sarah continued to make art while she was in prison. According to news reports, she would use things like mascara and lipstick when she ran out of charcoal, Her attorney actually brought the artwork to court to show her human side during her parole hearing. But the San Joaquin County Deputy District Attorney, Thomas Testa, said that he would totally oppose her profiting from her art. She kind of got caught up in the whole murderabilia controversy, even though at the time there was no evidence that she had or was going to sell any of her art. After serving 85% of her sentence, Sarah Dutra was released from prison on August 26, 2011. She was 31 years old. After she was paroled, she relocated to Solano County, California, to be near her parents. The case was made into a lifetime movie called Lies My Mother Told Me, starring Julie Richardson as Laren, and it's been covered on Dateline and Deadly Wives, and in at least two books. But in Lies My Mother Told Me, once again, Sarah is kind of portrayed as the young and innocent student, and Julie Richardson, who does an excellent job, by the way, tells her husband about her past, Larry is shown as being kind of a bad guy. In the movie, he basically blackmails her with that information to get her to stay with him. The evidence does not indicate that that happened, ever. Everyone who's covered this story has pointed out that it's a really crazy story because it makes you question how well you ever know anyone. No one is who or what they appear to be. We may never know the truth about exactly how much Larry knew about his wife. Judge Garber was talking about Larry's aliases. He said, You talk about life being a lie. That was Elisa McNabney. He also said where Laren had directly implicated Sarah in the killing of Larry, he said, I have wondered and wondered, was that true? And my answer is I don't know. Larry prided himself on being the smartest guy in the room and knowing everything about the cases he worked on. But when it came to his wife, he had no idea that she was a grifter. She didn't have an MBA. She had just cut off her ankle bracelet and fled the state of Florida. Larry never even knew his wife's real name. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend with production assistance from Alyssa Flowers and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?